Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. <laughs> second captain, first captain, whatever. Monday's Irish Times Second Captain's Podcast Presented by Owen Hi there Murph Hello there And Ken Hi Owen, how are you? I'm good Ken Some juicy 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 Sports corruption stories To get into today Haven't you been um, Gorging yourself a little bit too much On sports corruption recently Owen? I have And when I first spotted this tennis story Last night I was, I was watching the NFL playoffs. It's a bit of a grind. The last game was a bit of a defensive masterclass from mm. both the Denver Broncos and the Pittsburgh Steelers. And, you know, I'm all about the defensive masterclasses, sure, but I preferred the <laughs> many touchdowns scored in the previous game <laughs> between Arizona and Green Bay. Uh, Arizona and um, it was Seattle and North Carolina. Carolina. Seattle and, and, yeah. and Carolina, I should say. Anyway, this first, I, I, I was half looking at the game, half checking Twitter, saw this story, thought, well, this looks interesting, but am I ready for another sports scandal? This yes, I am, thing, it yeah. turns out. As soon as I started reading, I'm definitely ready for This one, I want to be pretty good, yeah. and as it turns out, it is pretty juicy, as you say, on. What do you think you have to do in order to be known as the most hated player on tour, by the way? This popped up in the report. Uh, Published a series of tweets saying, I have supplied EPO to a list of <laughs> named <laughs> tennis players. What other tennis Jesus players on below. tours? You think that would, well, that would maybe make that, you quite hated? That would make yeah. you unpopular. Now, Daniel Collarer apparently got that tag for brawling and spitting at opponents while ridiculing ball boys. I don't know if he's doing all those at the same time. He didn't. He, at least he didn't brawl and spit on the ball boys. No. That he, just, was, he just ridiculed well, those. Yeah. But anyway, he also happens to be the only player, or the first player certainly, who was banned for life for match fixing. He's by no means alone. Quite a few players taking part in the Australian Open right now should have joined him on the scrap heap if the tennis authorities had the balls to go after the problem. That's pretty much the paraphrase bottom line of the combined BBC BuzzFeed report. You've read the BuzzFeed part of things. BBC are doing a radio documentary on it tomorrow night. Yeah, it was interesting actually. I mean, I thought I found one one interesting aspect of it is the way in which the the changes in the world over the last few years have resulted in new ways to catch people who have done bad things that they assumed they were getting away with. Um, well, there's a couple of different strands to the BuzzFeed investigation, but uh, one very important one is the data um, investigation, mm. in which. Uh, one of their guys investigated uh, or essentially uh, looked at 26,000 tennis matches that had taken place over a seven-year period or possibly six-year period. Um, and what he was looking for 
were instances in which the betting odds had changed by more than 10% between when the match was first listed as a match that you could bet on and the final odds that were listed by the betting company. So he, he looked for seven different betting companies uh, at 26,000 matches and the movement in the odds. This is the kind of investigation that would not have been possible even a few years before yeah. this. You wouldn't have this amount of information. Uh, you, it certainly would be difficult to get it all together. Um, but you can do that kind of thing now. And suddenly things start to become... Little anomalies start to pop but up. But this was all 10 years ago, Ken. I've, a lot of people have been saying that. Ah, who cares? It's old news. Even oh, no. Uh, the, the chief executive of the ATP, Chris Kermode, gave a very detailed explanation of their side of things and a denial and a rebuttal. But I did find an interesting line. And while the BBC and BuzzFeed's report, BuzzFeed reports mainly refer to events from about 10 years ago, we will investigate any information and always do. But this wasn't, this isn't from 10 years ago. Um, I'm pretty sure, uh, well, I'm, I'm, yeah, no, the, these, these 26,000 professional matches that were analysed um, by BuzzFeed's data investigator uh, are between 2009 and 2015. Yeah, what's from 10 years ago, and it's not even as far ago as 10 years, but near enough, is this match played by Davidenko. Nikolai Davidenko played a game against an opponent who was way inferior. Very suspicious betting patterns around a match which in which Davidenko pulled out injured, despite leading by a The, the suspicious a bet, betting patterns were essentially that Davidenko is the heavy favourite. Yeah. Um, it, well, well, he should be the heavy favourite. He's won this tournament the previous year. He's playing against a much lower-ranked opponent, Vassalo Arcrejo. Uh, he, uh, for some reason, however, ends up uh, when when the match starts. Uh, Aguayo, the, who's the much lower ranked player, is the roaring red hot <laughs> favourite. Why is this? Oh, because uh, hundreds of thousands of pounds, or in fact, ultimately three point six million pounds, have been bet on Davidenko to lose, mm. like Aguayo to to win. Even though he's Aguayo has now lost. The first set, <laughs> and is playing against a much better and has been, player. Has been broken early in the second set. Still, the confidence of the gamblers is just it's the money still flowing. It's, it's, it's three point six million pounds being being gambled on the game now. Betfair actually alerted the uh, ATP, who then immediately got onto the tournament and sawpot during the first set. Mm. Going, this there's something weird going on. We don't know exactly what it is, but something strange is happening at this match because the volume of betting that we're seeing on it is way out of proportion to the scale, to the how important the match is. Also, for some reason, everyone's betting on the guy that you would imagine is probably going to lose because he's a much worse player and he's lost the first. He, he's losing in the first set. Uh, and sure enough, Davidenko uh, pulled out, citing, oh my, I've got a funny feeling no. in my toe. Is that a reason to pull out, by the way? It is. Well, on a bull now. Now, what happened back then was there, the ATP, as you said, were aware of this. As it was happening, they were thinking something was on here. They put together an investigative team. They started looking into it, started getting uh, information about a lot of big level, high level gamblers, particularly in Russia, started contacting them until one of the Russians being contacted said to the Betfair people in Russia, you might want to call off your dogs here. You might want to... You might want to relax with these ATB investigators who've been contacting us or somebody, namely the guy managing Betfair in Russia, might get hurt. So th that, at that stage, the trail ran somewhat cold after threats of violence started arriving in. But in the meantime, that's regards that specific match, but in the meantime, 
the investigators had found loads of stuff, loads of information about uh, a lot about gamblers, about players being played, over twenty players that they found, thought were in, involved in highly dubious, highly suspicious activities. The a tennis integrity unit was set up around this time. The investigation gave their information to this unit, who said thanks very much, but apparently didn't do anything about it. So that's that's the old news in a way. I mean, that's what happened all those years ago, but we hadn't heard much about it. Uh, until now, so there is new information on the on the old games, mm. and since then, as you were saying, Ken, not only has all that new data been analysed by uh, by BuzzFeed and by BBC, the sports governing bodies have also been warned repeatedly about a core group of sixteen players. Apparently, all of them in the top fifty have been in the top fifty at some stage. Some of whom have actually won Grand Slam events uh, and are at the centre of a lot of this, are alleged to be at the centre a lot of, of a lot of match fixing, but none have faced any sanctions. So this is all since. To the the tennis integrity unit was set up. The tennis integrity unit was set up all those years. Yeah, ago. and uh, whatever about the ten years ago argument. I mean, there are players playing in the Australian Open, as you say, right now, who are who are the names behind this. These these are the guys. So mm. I mean, it it couldn't be more relevant. It couldn't be more in the here and now than it is. Mm. Um, and also, sorry to cut across, but I, I don't think you can just brush away the 10 years ago thing either. Of course, it's ridiculous. Lance Armstrong was done for uh, incidents that had happened many years before the investigation. The, the, they finally went, you sort of finally nailed him on it. So yeah. I don't think you can just say, well, that doesn't end. There isn't a statute years. of limitations but, but sorry, on cheats you were, yeah, you were, and on being a cheat. But I mean, it, it's, it's actually the same they're wildly different in a lot of ways, these uh, corruption scandals, but they're all basically the same. The people can't see the wood for the trees, that if it's bad, if it's a bad news story, it's bad for the sport. And so it's in our own interest to try and hide all this stuff. Mm. So the, the the problem just festers in a sport instead of actually uh, people being people being able to understand that this if if w- one of our top 20 players, uh, uh, you know, like a, a Grand Slam winner, is caught in something like this. It's it's bad news for that person. It's great news for the sport, uh, but it's that's just the way it is. That's just the the insularity of these uh, sporting governing bodies. I mean, I think if you get flown around the world and treated like royalty wherever you go, it's it, it nearly becomes you're biting the hand that feeds you to act in the greater good instead of just uh, instead of just this. Uh, uh, self protection, you know, they, like that, this immediately becomes comes to the fore. What can I do to make sure that I don't get into trouble? Uh, how can I protect my own little fiefdom here in the world of sport, as opposed to actually saying, right, well, this is blatantly wrong and corrupt, and you're cheating. I mean, there's a, a stat there that since these names, since these names were being passed around from all of these integrity mm. units, 112 matches where heavily lopsided betting appears to have significantly shifted the odds since 2008, since the Tennis Integrity Unit was set up. You're just thinking, that's it's just pointless. Why, why would you allow that to happen the, in your sport? Well, the argument of, uh, on behalf of the authorities, part of it is that you can't just say, because there's irregular betting patterns, that that de facto means that there has been, that a player has been is tanking and deliberately losing a match. And that's true in a lot of cases. The reason that there's more money goes on what would seem to be a logical bet is because somebody has some inside information and that's a fairly central part of it. But the the egregious cases they're talking about and they outline in this long form BuzzFeed case uh, are, are fairly, are incredibly damning. They aren't the kind of bets that you're talking about where somebody just hears that oh, he's picked up an, an ankle knock, you know, he might be struggling a little mm. bit. These are cases where 
the, the gamblers know. And in some cases, and there's, there's cases outlined where the gambler gets onto the player, the player actually talks to his opponent the next day and sees if he wants to how they're going to divvy this up if he's happy enough for player number player number one says to player number two look can you let me win here even though you're the the favorite player this will all work out well you'll get your cut etc and sometimes that does work and sometimes he has to go back to mm. has to go back to the gamblers and say sorry it hasn't worked out this time yeah it's like level of stuff we're talking about not, yep. not not for every player but that is part of what's being reported yeah and uh, world number one novak Djokovic was speaking today uh saying that he'd been offered a bribe, uh, uh, when was it, uh, in 2007, was really? it? Really? Uh, yeah, but, I mean, someone offered him uh, 200 grand, uh, but of course I said no. You guys wouldn't have been interested in hearing about that at, at the time, <laughs> would you? No, no, that's why I just kept it to myself. You know, I mean, now that you're asking me about about bribery, I well, do actually have this know, story from my personal I don't, experience. I don't but. necessarily blame somebody for not coming forward with a story about having been offered 200 grand as a bribe. I mean... What kind of person offers that? You know, you're not necessarily dealing with people who you can trust. You t- you could be talking about dangerous people there. You know, I mean, if you if you're in the position of having been offered a lot of money um, to throw a a match, you know, okay, ideally you say no. I mean, a lot of people obviously say, yeah, I, how much money? Absolutely. You know, I'm, to be honest, I'm Is I'm glad. Cash or? So, suddenly, I'm. I'm kind of interested in this match now, you know. I, I wasn't really looking forward to it, and now I've got something to look forward to. Okay, that's that's the reaction of most people. Some people might be like, "Oh no, I, I don't want to take money um, to you know to throw to throw a match," but that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to come well, straight on, forward so you... and alert the authorities because you know who, you don't know who you're dealing with. You know, you could be like the, the obviously the Russian you know, one of the Russian gamblers who was being an investigator who, who received a call from the investigators into this soap art match. Went on to threaten the Betfair manager. Yeah, that's the one I referenced earlier. Yeah, you know, it's this is the kind of you're you're, you're talking about criminals. Well, that was John. Actually, funny you mentioned that. That was John Higgins's basic defense uh, in snooker. He said, "Look, the reason that there's video of me accepting bribes to throw a frame or a match or whatever it was is because I was in this situation that I don't know how I got myself into. I was advised by people close to me to meet these to meet these guys." I'm suddenly meeting them. I'm quite scared, and I'm just saying whatever I can to keep them sweet and to get out of there. Well, you know, I, I, what I'm saying is I'm dubious about I'm not those. Sure, sort of... not sure about that one actually, because the problem with that is he's accepting the bribe. You see, mm. uh, I mean, if he was to then come forward or secretly come forward and say, "Look, I've had this. I'm I'm scared. I'm worried about these people, but this is what's happened," then maybe he'd have some defense. But I mean, I you know, someone who who turns down the bribe but also doesn't want to necessarily expose the, or doesn't want to take the risk. I can understand that. I can empathize. You probably you know, should at least tell the authorities, though. No? Yeah. If somebody's just trying to bribe me for two Surely you're going to be quite concerned about what's happening in your in your own sport. And could well, I mean, you'd be more concerned, them. frankly, about your own physical safety than what's happening in your sport. I think most people would, would probably be more concerned about that. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm. Uh, I mean... Uh, I, I can I can see how people might be reluctant to to come forward. The well, uh, you might also be reluctant to come forward if you think nothing's going to be done about it. Is another point which uh, I suppose you can read this article and judge that for yourselves. The tennis <laughs> the tennis world isn't one that I think the casual sports fan trusts in all that much. Uh, I I remind you of the Andre Agassi story from Agassi's autobiography. Yeah. So he has been contacted by the ATP saying, uh, "Yeah, uh, Andre, some." Some weird shit's showing up in your your test here. You seem to be doing some crystal meth or something. I don't know. I don't even recognize it. What is this stuff? Uh, and he's like, oh, sh- oh, okay, what do I say here? So I eventually he writes a letter. He, 
this is what he says to him. I say that recently I drank accidentally from one of Slim. Slim is his character. This sort of nefarious uh, character who pops up in the book. I drank uh, accidentally from one of Slim's spiked sodas, unwittingly ingesting his drugs. I asked for understanding and, understanding and leniency and hastily sign it, sincerely. I feel ashamed, of course. I promise myself that this lie is the end of it. Following the letter from Agassiz, the ATP dropped the case, allowing the American to regain a form that would see him go on to win the French Open in 98, US Open in 99. I know that's all a long, long time ago now, but uh, there have been plenty of articles written about the issue of potential doping in tennis and what has or hasn't been done about it yeah. over the years. I mean, there was there, another funny detail in the story um, has to do with the the way in which that team that had investigated the, the match itself had kind of stuck together. They, they kind of were kindred spirits in a way. And they would often, uh, they, they, they were no longer really had anything to do with tennis, but they would occasionally alert the uh, tennis investigative authority to uh, matches that, in their opinion, were being fixed due to the betting patterns. Um, they say, oh, well, yeah, by the way, you got a fixed match in progress uh, there. If you might, you might want to have a look at that one because uh, that match is almost certainly being That's fixed. That's some good trolling there. There's, I really a, there's a one that. in a thousand chance that match isn't being fixed. Maybe you want to have a look at that. Uh, after one such letter, Reese uh, sent a stinging response. This is the guy who actually was in charge of the of the sort of official um, tennis uh, investigative body. I've hesitated before writing to you, but I think I need to make you aware that in my view, it's only a matter of time before a tennis player brings an action for libel against organizations, individuals, newspapers, those who make wild and irresponsible allegations. So basically, <laughs> shut up. Mm-hmm. Or like, shut up, or a player is going to sue you. Uh, for insinuating that they're fixing a match. Of course, he's like, oh, guys are like, okay, whatever. But the very last line of the piece is basically, tennis hasn't got a problem because they don't want to have a problem, which is the same situation as you see, I think, in, in pretty much every sport. There is an end product in sight to the year of fevered championship structure debates. What exactly can the GA do to solve the fairly outstanding issue uh, of uh, a, l- a lack of any real, well-thought-out, modern-day structure to their main competitions. Well, it's a return to the old Tommy Murphy Cup that was disbanded mm. because nobody was interested in it. We don't have to, you don't have to get into detail on this one now, Murphy. We have got Oshie McConville coming into us for the first time in 2016, a little bit later on, so we'll get into all of that then. Rugby first, though, Simon, a rare positive weekend in Europe for Munster and Leinster, yeah. which is nice. Now, the Leinster Academy has been talked about a lot, one of the few bright points. Any, any of these articles that get written about the future for the Irish provinces tends to state that Leinster are at least in a better position to, than Munster because they have this conveyor belt yeah. of talent ready to come through. But I have heard mur- murmurings from Leinster fans saying, well, we haven't necessarily seen that many of them. You hear about you hear about guys, and obviously Gary Ringrose is one who has come through so far this year. But up until now, there's been a sense maybe that people are waiting just to be sure that there is this crop. I think maybe there was some, some proof at the weekend. Yeah, it always seems a vague thing, doesn't it, in any sport? And you hear it in football, the exact same thing. Man City's academy, it's going to produce... But in rugby, there's definitely more of a direct link between how the first team should perform and how the academy's been pr- performing. And as you say, we hear that Munster are five years behind, but they've caught up, and then so it won't be five years before we see it. So it's very hard to have clear evidence. Mm. But there's one thing, one or two guys coming through, but when there's, I think it was six, maybe seven players involved in that, in that game that have come through the academy quite recently, all n- not just playing individually, like connecting with each other, and playing in the way that the Leinster A team had played under Gervin Dempsey before he moved up to to the full Leinster team, yeah, the, this com- is the confidence was was incredible. The confidence, say like uh, the no look pl- pass from Tracy out in the wing to Nathewa, props off loading, looking comfortable in possession. It was more than just a win against a reasonably good bat team. 
it was it was the style of play and it was the people who won it for them. Well, Shane Horgan and Jerry Thornley are ready to go. Jerry's in studio. How are you, Jerry? Good, thanks. And you? Uh, not bad at all. You Happy first Monday to you. <laughs> you first raised the possibility of Leinster throwing in. Well, it wasn't so much throwing in the young players, but playing a weakened team is the way we were looking at it at the time for the last couple of games which of the European competition, which made sense. But I've got to say, grim me out of, uh, first a little bit, just the thought that this is what it's come to now, that you play these dead mm. rubbers and you play a lot of players who wouldn't normally be there on merit. I've changed my tune entirely. That was very exciting watching all those young players. Yeah, it ticked a lot of boxes because you're blooding young players, exposing them to the rarefied air of European Champions Cup against a bath side with everything to play for. Um... And after disappointments like a World Cup or a pool campaign like this, um, a support base is eager to see young indigenous players coming through. Let's give youth its fling is a common popular cry after a disappointment like that. And so it would imagine it sent the supporters away far more rejuvenated than if it had just been a more recognisable team. The but very it, fact that there were yeah. six young players making their full Heineken Cup days. Some of them had made an impact before. Let's not, I was, it's interesting, the two Bath games, because the Bath won away. The one try they scored in their first three or four games was down to Josh van der Flyer, James Tracy, and um, um, there was a couple of young players coming off the bench that night. And, and they, along with the Kiwis, looked Leinster's freshest, most eager players back then in those early stages. I'm counting van der Flyer as an experienced head now, Yeah, Jerry, exactly. Yeah, this yeah, point of the season. It's surprising yeah. <laughs> that that was his first It's amazing that it was Gary Ringrose's first European Cup start, given that um, he was there all of last season and hardly got a look in the Pro 12, never mind the European Cup. And when you think back again, sorry for sound like a stuck record, but given all the injuries that they had in the Wasp game, why Leo Cullen and Gervin Dempsey at all didn't take the plunge and play him from the start that day, rather than trying to reconvert Fergus McFadden from a winner to a centre. And he's long since been a winner, no disrespect to him. I think he'd probably be the first to accept that. That was a curious call. So it, it ticked a lot of boxes. They brought a lot of fresh energy. Every Irish team, particularly Irish team, more so than any other teams, needs um, fresh young talent from within. It's just, it's the nature of the beast. And I think it matters more so than for French and English teams, even that the fresh young, you think back to Munster's 06 and 08 campaigns and Ian Dowling and Barry O'Matney and um, Barry, uh, all the new guys that came in that in that, that setup as well. I think, just think it's very important. It regenerates. It gives, when you see young players coming in and providing a lot of energy, the older players take energy from that as well. You know, sometimes older the players. The fans took energy from huge, it. Huge, huge. Yeah. They, they, There's just a different feeling about a, a young guy coming up and, you know, Potential is an exciting is an exciting a thing as somebody who's already established themselves because you're thinking of the future and good times that might lie ahead. But in terms of the way they play, um, so Gervin Dempsey and Fogarty have had access to these younger players for quite a few years now and been playing brilliant stuff, but obviously not at the elite level. So this is the first time a bunch of them have come through and played together in the one team and won a big game. Is there an argument there that? given the coaches access to these guys since they were younger and the style of play that they now play under Leo Cullen and Gervin Dempsey and Fogarty, that the, the younger academy players are more suited to that style of play than the older established war dogs. I think there's an element of truth in that for sure because they've come through and they would have worked with uh, the, the Leinster system and the they're more open-minded to this brand of rugby. You can also jump to conclusions pretty easily on the basis of one match. I think what it is does show, though, I think plenty of, of the more established older players can play this brand of rugby as well. I think it certainly shows what, there's a quicker service from scrum half, what that can do, because this requires a high tempo. 
Um, and I think also it's just an investment in the future. It means when these guys come to play European Champions Cup rugby next season, Leinster are better set for that. And now with how they're going in the Pro 12, of course, they can really redeem their season now in lots of ways um, by getting a higher seeding, maybe by winning a title, certainly getting a higher seeding and getting a more favourable draw. And now they will have a basis of players who've had been exposed to an experienced Champions Cup rugby. I hope a lot of them play again next weekend. Shane, are we getting carried away at all by the performance? I am. I <laughs> <laughs> I really enjoyed it. You talk about um, senior players being energised by the performance of these younger players and the fan base uh, likewise, but certainly there's some um, people that have been watching um, the league for the last uh, 18 months or so and they'll be re-energised as well. I'm certainly one of them. Um, I think it's also vital and uh, for Leinster to do what they've done. Now, I was worried before the game that maybe Leo and Gervin had blooded too many and you don't ever want to see a team of, of young players overrun by a um, more experienced team in Europe but that certainly wasn't the case they got the balance entirely right um, I think the players that they brought in the young players shone remarkably well and it is vital that Leinster do this because and it's also vital that the other Irish provinces do this because it's the only way that they can compete at the highest level one by bringing indigenous talent through. We're not a French team. We're not, we don't have the funds, nor do we have the desire uh, within the country, nor the structure that allows us to bring in five or six overseas, big money overseas players. Nobody wants that. It's not going to be done. So we need to produce homegrown talent. And secondly, we are not going to beat the French um, teams in playing the way they play. We need to play the way we play which has traditionally in the recent past been a high uh, skill level game and that's what was most pleasing for me about uh, these players, they were hugely committed certainly there was no doubt about that but you often see young players running around um, being as energetic as possible but uh, occasionally you see their skill level drop this was a very highly skilled performance albeit against a bad side that look a shell of the team that was looking so good only just 12 months ago. Yeah, Mike Ford was very generous afterwards but uh, about the Leinster performance but I did get the sense that he was a bit flummoxed as to why Bath can't can't perform. He made the point that the pack usually, the reason their backs always look so good is that the pack last season gave them a pretty good platform to operate from but just on, on all these players coming in together at the same time, a lot of them are forwards as well. You're talking about a front row, a new front row there, Ross Maloney in the second row, Van der Flyer who's is still a very young player in the back row, uh, you would think logic would dictate that that would be a serious problem, that whatever about you know, maybe playing somebody at, at, at centre, you might get away with a couple a couple of backs, but the pack themselves were largely made up of young players, Jerry, and they performed in the way that they did. It's pretty impressive. Yeah, real energy about them, great, great carries, great clearouts. Doing Peter Strina's book there over the summertime, he was saying the key to Monster success was always the work rate of their tight five, mm-hmm. the unseen stuff. But that, you know, that you had the Hayes, the Horns, the O'Connells, the O'Callans, the Flannerys. They just did such an amount of clearing out, carrying and tackling that it gave them a leg up on, on most of the opposition they played. And I just thought, looking at them, Maloney's work rate is carrying, Tracy's carrying, Dooley's carrying, their clear outs, their work rate. And again, that sends a, a vibe through the rest of the ground. And it, it, you're right, it started there. It started with their work rate. And then you had Luke McGrath whipping the ball away and there was some nice variations of their back play as a result. But they were getting there, they were retaining the ball they all really have won by more. You know, they played some really good rugby and were close to a couple of earlier tries in the game. It took a long time for their try to come, but it was good, a bit like Munster. When they came under pressure, 
they regrouped and went again. There was a real belief. Um, and it just shows you what a little bit of confidence can do. Shane, you make the point that... Uh, I think that we need to move away, though, from work rate of especially, you know, the, the front three uh, being uh, the end-all and be-all. Uh, or the physical nature of their play. And I think they have to be givens now. They just have to be things that uh, every top team has, and certainly every top team in Ireland has. What we need to do now is look for more, the more the subtlety that uh, I saw at the weekend from, from Peter Dooley, from Tyg Furlong, uh, from James Tracy, you know, Ross Maloney. All those guys showed a subtlety in their game and a high skill level. They transferred the ball very smoothly uh, while running. Um, they looked for second touches. They were more clinical at the breakdown. Like, so I think we have to focus now on not just our backs being of a certain skill level, but we have to demand these players that we demand so much of anyway through the physical um, performance that they have to bring and, and performance in the line and the scrum. We're not going to get to the next level, either as provincial teams or as a national team, by just having great work rate or workhorses or guys who are good in the set piece in those areas. It's a new generation, and and Munster and James Cronin have it as well. And we've seen a number of the um, Connick forwards as well are demonstrating this sort of high skill level that is vital to how we proceed and, and progress over the next few years. And Shane, the knock-on effect of having that skill and the ability to clean out rooks and have a lot more possession is that there's less scrums, less malls, so maybe less pressure on those young props in second rows to be in 15, 20 scrums a game because you're holding on to the ball more and you're making the opposition think about you more than uh, worrying about the set pieces. Yeah, I think it's... Uh, they de- Although those Fords dealt admirably with uh, set piece in particular, scrum, they look strong in, uh, through the entire game. But um, I think it's a it's a valid point, and you don't want to be going down to the trenches with you know a, a really physical energy sapping um, battle when you have this other skill set that you can employ, which is more effective and more likely to to re, uh, yield uh, scores from. Just on Munster. Uh, Jerry, you're at the game at Tom, mm-hmm. and it was a funny one because you're, you're you're tuning in, thinking, well, you know, this is a complete dead rubber. There's nothing much is going to come of it one way or the other, and yet they seem to at least put in a performance that that got something out of the supporters, something out of the players. Everyone seemed more delighted than you would have thought they would have been winning a match that has no real consequence. Well, it just shows a bit like the ODS is no such thing as a dead rubber for an Irish team, really, is there? Uh, because the, the feel-good factor generated amongst fans and um, within the squad, going back into training on a Monday and in the long term is so beneficial from a performance and a win that's overdue and badly needed. There's a baseline with Munster that they don't let down the jersey. They don't let down that crest. And certainly in the second half away to Stadford and say they did let it down and they were well below their standards of the kind of resilience and dog and fight that you just expect from Munster that's taken as a given. And so that was back with a vengeance. But there was also a bit like Leinster, um, a willingness to keep the ball and play and make the opposition tackle. The opposition also had everything to play for. It probably wasn't actually in truth as convincing and as compelling a win as Leinster's. It was more flawed. I was there, and right up until the 39th minute, they were losing 6-5. Ian Keatley had missed a conversion from, ironically, the position where he would have taken the penalty had they gone for the post, so they were right to go for the corner. And then Keith Earl scores a try out of nothing. You know, it's funny how um, a misplaced pass, which forced the defender to check back in field and forced the entire defensive line to check 
um, can then lead to an opening. He gets one on one with Pascal Pape and made him look like he was jogging on the spot, left him for dead, and then slides in on the post from halfway. He's one of the very, very few players in Irish rugby who can do that. And that transformed the mood of the players. It just couldn't have been better time coming right on the stroke of half time and under the post, which meant that Ian Keatley converted as well. And as Matt Williams often says in this show, championship minutes within two minutes of the restart, I presumed it had been a call from the video staff at half-time, but it had transpired. It was entirely concocted by Ian Keatley and Simon Zebo off the cuff. The Keatley chipped into that space. Um, great take by Zebo on the run. Uh, and then with one bound, they're free. A bit like Leinster, when Stad came back into the game, they then showed what they are made of. I thought Standard's response to Ronald Manny's yellow card and to the try. He just seemed to be everywhere. He seemed to be playing in the wing everywhere. It was a phenomenal effort from him and the team. And they won well. And they feel an awful lot better about themselves. It's still bittersweet because it shows what might have been possible if they dug in and for bonus points along the way, they'd still be alive. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned Sander there because he was getting all the love from the TV commentary team. Uh, and it's funny that in uh, a bit of a disastrous time for Munster at the moment... This one player seems to his stock seems to be rising with every game. Yeah, I'm not too sure that he's the ideal captain since I think he only knows one play of playing. That's a hundred miles an hour. I don't know <laughs> if he could, you know, slow the game down like an Anthony Foley could have done this pomper and tighten the game up because he only knows one way of playing. But it's a phenomenal way of playing, and it certainly leaves nothing left behind. In that ten minutes, that Ronan Manny was in the bin. I saw him make a poach penalty. I saw him make a tackle over the touchline. I saw him make a choke tackle on the touchline. And then, of course, after they scored the try, he went and scored the try as well. It was just he was single-handedly making up for the man disadvantage. And he is a very much a leader from the front. And they follow him. And he's certainly feeling the love from Anthony Foley afterwards as well, mm. talking about him. And he's been it's been thrust upon him this captaincy with um, both. Peter Armani injured Paul O'Connell gone and Conor Murray not around for a lot of the time as well and it's been thrust upon him and he's just led from the front every week leading carrier leading tackler poaches whatever and I'd say there's a huge sense of relief for him as well because he would have been so conscious of what he, the mantle he was inheriting I mean this is the man who's publicly admitted Paul O'Connell has reduced him to tears on at least two occasions he's bought into the Munster culture and uh, it, it was a huge sense of relief for them. I'm glad for them because if they'd lost that one as well, you'd wonder where this thing was going to go with them. You know, that would they would that this squad would almost have been a, a beaten docket, a busted docket for the entire season. And the thing about Leinster and Munster now is that they this can feed into their Pro 12 campaign for the rest of the season, both of them. Shane, is Stander pushing Jamie Hees up for the Ireland spot? Do you think? Um, I don't know. He plays in a certain um, certain way. I don't think he maybe has the subtlety that uh, Jamie has in his game, but uh, he certainly can't be. Uh, um, discredited when it comes to commitment. Um, I think, though, maybe it's in some way it's um, his performances and, and the performance actually of Munster the weekend are covering up um, some you know underlying issues. And I just think this idea of constantly referring to how much pride they have in the jersey. Um, yes, they are important, and but I, I don't think it's very often that you don't get that from a Munster team, any Munster team, and I, this Munster team included. Um, so I think uh, I'm sort of a little bit uh, worried when that's the only um, conversation that I hear, and that's the only sort of, um, that's the focus of, uh, of all the chat. It's got to be um, understandable though, post-game Shane. Pre- yeah, it's got to be understandable that uh, that that this is a big part of the analysis, given that it is a part of the game that up till now, up till recent history with Munster, has been taken for granted. But it does seem to be a little shaky. There have been times where they haven't maybe been as uh, as bullish enough on the field, as passionate enough on the field, and just by the nature of where they're at at the moment, when they do perform at one hundred percent in that level, it, it is now remarked upon. 
Yeah, but I would not confuse that previous Munster team with a team that's just was built on passion and pride and commitment because they were so much more than that. They were they were uh, had a huge amount of subtlety and they had a nine and ten. They had um, halfbacks that made things very very difficult for you. They had um, smart players the whole way and subtle players the whole way through. Now I think this team has some as well, but I don't think they're utilised as often. And I think. Simon made a really interesting point last week that sometimes when um, players' uh, skill level isn't quite what it should be, um, that it looks that manifests or lo- looks like they're not committed to the jersey. And I think, you know, that's to some degree what happened last week. I didn't think they were massively, um, you know, that the players didn't care about the monster jersey. They weren't committed. I think they were taken apart by some uh, good play. I think some uh, poor technique. Um, but also as well, you know, there was a star in Macaloo there, and I think he almost caught Keith Earls from behind for that phenomenal try that Keith scored um, at the weekend. Uh, what he did for the try over in Paris was was phenomenal. Yes, there was flawed ta- tackle t- tackle technique, but I don't think it was because players weren't committed to the Munster jersey. I think you need to separate these two things out. And um, I think there has been an issue with the skill level. Uh, there's been an issue with um, set piece, and there's been a, a, an issue with um, what they're doing off rolling plays and how predictable they've come off that. And it was another huge emotional performance at the weekend that got them over the gain line. And the problem is you can't keep on doing emotional performances. And what Munster used to do in the last two years was save them for Europe. And that was enough to get them through Europe. But now they're having to use up some of that emotional capital to get through Pro 12 games. Mm. And there's just not enough there. Last quick word on Ulster, Jerry. Give them any chance of going through? I think they missed a trick, not getting that bonus point away to Inax. And they've slipped behind now as a result. They're basically the fifth-ranked second-place side. Um, so they need to get above two of the others, um, and they're disadvantaged by kicking off first. So they'll be the target for the others. They will if they beat Oyna at home with a bonus point, that'll take them to eighteen points. Unless there's some kind of freak, I think the threshold's going to go up from seventeen last season to maybe at least eighteen, if not nineteen. Unless there's a freak like Claremont losing at home to Bordeaux, which we take won't happen. Therefore, they need two of the following four results to go their way. They need um, the Ospreys to lose away to Exeter. Um, or and or they need uh, that was a really damaging late try for Northampton against Glasgow for them. They now need Northampton to lose away to the Scarlets. They need Stad to lose at home to Leicester, or they need uh, Wasps to lose to Leinster. They need two of those four right. to go their way. I think that's a big ask. I think they might miss out, and I think Connacht too uh, missed a trick as well by losing away to Breve at the end. They're now the um, they're the fifth ranked runner up as well. They realistically need to win their pool, so they need a favour from Newcastle. Lost the Russian side, and they need Newcastle to be brave and them to win their match. And even then, by my calculations, they cannot get a home quarter final. They're going to be behind the other four pool winners. So at the best, we're going to, Irish rugby is going to get one away quarter finalist in the Challenge Cup. Damn it, Jerry! We started on a positive note, but we're <laughs> that's the reality. <laughs> we're, we're sorry, how sorry. It's Blue Monday, you know. <laughs> Jerry, Shane, thank you. Thanks, Mel. Cheers. The Every so often I'm on the bus and I suddenly turn around to bite someone. John Hayes I'm talking about, Owen. John Hayes. Now, I always thought that was ridiculous. He had won the victory over himself. He loved Brendan Rogers. That's where it goes from. Thanks a lot, Pepe. Fair to say, anybody could have managed those guys? No, of course not. Let me show you right now for you give it up.
Yeah, it certainly seems as though, just to go back to Leinster for a minute, well, really, this is relevant for all the Irish provinces, that the only way to compete is to have a really smart, really well thought out and well financed and well well structured academy system and to then give those players the, the chance. But it's easier said than done. Is that actually going to be enough to to beat all the money that's out there? Well, I think it matters in rugby if players have played together over a number of years. So you're looking for unique advantages you have over the opposition. And the French have abandoned this almost completely. I think if you're looking for ways to distinguish yourself from the, the, the countries who are doing, who have more money, essentially, one of the things is guys who are not just playing together, but playing a certain style together from a very young age and having similar skill sets. Um, and it's maybe overlooked in what Leinster and Munster did in the past that all those players who came up together they were a really tight-knit bunch. It, it wasn't just the, you know, that they had superior players. It was the fact that they all really wanted to represent the, the club or the province that they were playing for. So there aren't many positives you're looking ahead to the French constantly uh, taking the best Southern Hemisphere players. But if you're looking for one that you can do better, then it's a pretty obvious example. It would have been nice, by the way, if Sky Sports allowed us to join that Munster game, you know, sometime in the first half an hour or so, yeah. rather than showing the dying embers of a rout in a big bash cricket match. I don't know if you, you heard about this over the weekend, Ken. Before anyone says anything about a red button, by the way, I'm a virgin media man. Uh, that's what I have in my house. And there does there is a physical red button, which I actually pressed this time because people kept talking about the red button on Twitter saying, just, just the red button. Pressed it. I don't know what it's there for. To be honest, it didn't. It doesn't it record. Didn't, I don't know what exactly. Is, is I see, maybe it was just, I was how I was recording the Big Bash cricket, probably. But no, uh, that's of no relevance on um, on the package that I have. You're just watching what you have. You don't have the option to go behind the red button. And a lot's been talked about this this year with regard to the future of rugby in Ireland. Everyone focusing on crowd numbers in particular at Munster and Leinster, but TV numbers are possibly well at least as important you already have to pay a fortune to watch all the games since BT came in and split the market there so I don't you just kind of a situation where a European Cup game is relegated to the role of a program that you just you just fit in if you can yeah and I think um you know it's it's obviously not uh, uh an academic way of of studying it but games that have been on BT in the past or you know in, over the last six months if you're on Twitter no one is and again, it's completely, mm. you know, the Twitter is the people that I follow. That's Twitter for me. But so few people are talking about Leinster games. On BT. When they're on BT. And, I, th- you know, the whole idea is that competition is supposed to be good for us as consumers. But all it is is it's just double the price oh, yeah, no, of I've watching got, sport I've, on. I've got friends who, stopped, who just stopped subscribing to Sky because they, to Sky Sports, they had Sky Sports largely for the rugby. And then realised, well, hang on, now I have to also subscribe to BT just just to watch the mm. pool games, to watch all the pool games, and, and actually just stopped. And just on the specifics of this as well, I did uh, was nerdish enough to go back and time it. From the end of the cricket to the start, so the cricket overran, this mm. is the issue, uh, which I know people, I know that can happen, but normally, and Sky in particular, w- just not, normally wouldn't let it happen, that it would interfere with it. They'd have it timed in such mm. a way that that's just not where the scheduling is. The, the rugby We've only, they've only it. five channels. Yeah, exactly, yeah. But from the end of the cricket to the start of the rugby coverage, there was more than seven minutes. It was almost seven minutes and 20 seconds until you actually saw it started with a line-out on the 31st minute in the Munster game. And five of that was post-match analysis. So the cricket finish was a very one-sided game anyway. And then you're watching interviews and (laughs) studio chat. Seven minutes isn't a lot of of time when you know that all you're missing is pre-game analysis and interviews. But when you know that there's actual sport happening that that you're not able to watch. And sport sport is the one thing that uh, everyone talks about this the whole time is that we still watch 
you have to watch. You feel like you have to watch yeah. live, and you certainly have to, you know, not miss the first mm. half an hour. But anyway, that's that's what's grinding my gears this week. That's <laughs> the Irish Times Second Captain's Football Podcast. It's already out. Ken, you've been working hard. That's yeah. They have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. Have to walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. What are you talking about? What have you I'd say it to you, I'll say it to you now. What are you doing down here, you man? Well, we talked about the uh, Liverpool Man United game at Anfield. Wasn't a great game, but we had a good chat. And the Chelsea Everton match, uh, which was the previous day, and Roberto Martinez's habit of blaming everybody but himself. Mm, you think you're a nice guy, Roberto? <laughs> yeah. Ushin McConville has popped into the studio for the first time in 2016. Great to see you. Ushin, how are you? How's the form? Ah, the form is good. It's going to get even better now because uh, we're, we're, we're going to talk. <laughs> you're pumped about talking GA championship structures in mid-January? Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, Murph assures me, assures me that this is the most interesting thing that's happened in the GA championship mm. structure story in, in uh, quite a long time. Well, well essentially what's happened is the, a, a lot of pretty sensible um, and... In, in some cases, quite radical proposals mm. have been made by various people. GPA, Jim McGuinness has thrown, thrown some mm. interest and stuff like that. A lot of people, the Central Council, who you would assume would be the most important in all this, have put their own th- theory forward, which is um, fairly underwhelming, you find. Yeah, I, th- I think how the whole thing is played out is pretty much exactly how, like, certainly factions within the GA would have liked it to have played out. So there's loads and loads of talk about, you know, radical revamps and all the rest. And then. When it gets down to it, the, all of those ideas get shrunk and shrunk and shrunk until what you're left with is like basically like the like the bare carcass, you know, like the decaying carcass <laughs> of of the original idea of idea is like is going to be planted onto the yeah. the, the the main table at Congress and people. Yeah. Are, well, what do you make of this? This basically this rotting corpse of an idea that might have looked pretty good six months ago. Uh, yes or no to the carcass. There everyone. are a couple of key, <laughs> basically key proposals. One of them is that really the, the the main restructuring the senior championship is just that everyone competes. Everyone competes in the provincial championship as is, and teams in Division Four, uh, but the teams in Division Four go into their own competition, so that they are essentially in a Tommy Murphy Cup type mm. competition from the start. I'm right in saying, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So if, if they, they play in the provincial championships, but instead of four rounds of qualifiers, now there's just three rounds of qualifiers. So eight teams will be. Read uh, uh, diverted into from the after provincial championship, yeah. Knocked out unless into, yeah. they win a provincial, unless they get to a provincial final, which get case. to a provincial final, yeah. What do you make of that? Um, what do I make of it? Uh, look at it. It's nice and simple, anyway. Some of these, some of these are so convoluted. That's a nice simple plan. Yeah, Just, it is a nice simple plan. It's it's also a plan that probably nobody's going to go for. Yeah. You know, uh, it has to carry two two thirds majority when it goes. to... <laughs> When it goes to Congress, I just can't. I can't see that happening. Um, but do you like it? Do you like that idea? I Think actually played in the All Ireland uh, Tommy Murphy Cup in '97, '98. Um, we were actually beaten by Louth uh, at that time, but we were at a very low ebb at that stage, and we wanted uh, the management of the team, Brian McLennan and Brian Callum, wanted us to get extra games, so we got one extra game which we were beaten in. Uh, there was, I'd say, there was. 30, 40 people there watching the game. There was no real hunger for it. I think if this was boxed up and and presented in the right way, it could be a goer. 
players have it in their head now that they don't want to be involved with this. Um, a lot of that seems to stem from the fact that GPA have come in and they've you know they've got everybody together and they've come up with a proposal. If you talk to most players now, that's the proposal that they have in their head. They don't realize like that they don't have you know the say that possibly they think they have. And uh, that, the, that the GPA doesn't have to say. Uh, yeah, well, they, it doesn't have. Yeah, the, yeah it doesn't generally. have the final say. If you like, you know, is what provo- proposals are going forward to Congress. I feel that most players were under the, um, were under the thought that that whatever they proposed was going to end up in Congress, and that hasn't happened. Uh, they have one of the things that the players seem to be death against is this uh, second tier. And uh, this proposal um, involves that second tier. Players will feel as if they're being backed into a corner by, by the GEA. And uh, I think that there's going to be a lot of uh, propaganda around the fact that uh, players won't want this to happen. Um, I, I think the other thing about, about this whole thing is that it's not radical. It's not going to make a huge amount of difference. So not not to the scheduling, which is the biggest issue. Yeah, I, exactly. But, but looks of it, you're still going to have yeah. roughly the same. I said I I said on a committee in Crow Park on called the uh, the welfare scientific. Oh, I don't even know the name of it. But, uh, the GA uh, uh, No, it's about the scientific yeah. and welfare committee, basically. Right. Okay. Yeah. So for a lot of time, I wondered why I was sitting on the committee because a lot of it was around concussion and different things you got there. Then the, the, the issue of of welfare in general, not just player welfare, but welfare in general within the GEA comes up. And the only thing, if, if, I, if I go around and I take a straw poll between uh, players all around the country, whether it be club or whether it be county, the one thing that keeps coming back to me is fixtures. If we can sort out the fixtures issue, then I think all of this stuff goes away. I think all this stuff around the around the around the challenge goes away. It's not going to be ideal because we're still going to be sitting here in the summer saying like, is that twenty seven point defeat for Carlo or whoever is you know is that the way forward? Is that helping anybody? And the answer to that is no. But that's just the way it is, and I think that's the way it is. And the more you watch sport, the more you realize that that is the way it is in a lot of other sports. There's some very very strong teams, or some weaker teams. I think everybody deserves a crack at it. And I've said that before, in an FA Cup type scenario, whatever it is, or the way we have it going at the minute, everybody deserves a crack, one crack at the at the big boys. And if that doesn't work out, then possibly, as I say, if packaged in the right way, then the All-Ireland B Championship could be a way to go. Yeah, and I think what you need to focus on in some respects is what are you actually trying to achieve by the restructuring of the championship? Is it... To get rid of the 27-point beatings or is it to uh, make sure that if Armagh start in the Ulster preliminary round that Kerry have it as tough to win the All-Ireland yeah. in any given year. But to be honest, like all of those conversations are dead now because yeah. this is this is what we've gone with. You know, the, the Central Council... Now, other motions can be presented to Congress from other counties, but this is the one that's been... Yeah. You know, that comes from the Central Council. So it's the one that has the imprimatur of Crow Park. So, you know, this is the one that's probably going to get debated the most. But, I mean, it's interesting that you mentioned the players there, the Division 4 teams. I mean, the Carlo manager, Turlock O'Brien, is not amused 
Uh, he said yesterday, it's like adults talking in a room about the children when they're present and ignoring them. I don't remember the Division 4 teams being called together and asked their opinion on what's best for them. The players were asked, I suppose, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, it's evident our views of a B championship don't count for a lot. It's not in our best interest. The league is an accurate gauge, tells you where you're standing. We have no contention with that, but when it comes to the championship, there should be inclusiveness. What you're talking about there is the FA Cup-style model where everyone gets one shot. But... They do get one shot, though, even in this new proposal, no? Yeah, they do. But the idea here is, sorry, the, the point that I'm, I'm trying to make here is that the B Championship is completely dead if the teams that are going to play in the B Championship don't think it's a good idea. Yeah. You know, like, the, the, the whole, this stands or falls on whether, uh, you know, the GA will talk about marketing it in the correct way or whatever. But if, if Carroll get beaten in the first round of the Leicester Championship, they don't have a qualifier to look forward to, they have a B Championship to look forward to, and all of their players... Just head off to America and say, right, we're you know you can enter whoever you like in the Tommy Murphy Cup. We've no interest in it. Then immediately, that's it. The thing's dead. Forget about it. And I mean, if if you're talking about radical restructuring of the championship, then yes, the players should definitely be involved. But if all you're talking about is the Division Four teams, then you know this has nothing to do with Galway. It's nothing to do with Cork or yeah. Kerry or Mayo or anyone. It's if those eight counties think this is a good idea, it'll work. If they don't think it's a good idea, then it's dead on its dead in the and there's going to be a lot of uh, there's going to be a lot of those divi- division f- uh, four teams who who are going to be absolute death against it in fact probably all of them but um, if th- what they'll try and do now is they'll try and get the other counties on side to say that this is not you know a good idea it won't go through a congress and we'll be as mm. we it'll be as you were um, and the worst of it is actually I think it, the other thing to say about it is that there's other teams apart from the Division 4 teams who should be in this championship if that's what we're proposing you know what I mean I think you could include half a Division 3 in that as well so uh, I think and that, that, and that would act, that would be something different that would be something that we could sit around here and talk about and say right well we don't know how it's going to end but I mean we've tried the Tommy Murphy Cup yeah. and after an initial burst of interest in it it faded away and then it died a completely unheralded death and so you know the the what's frustrating to me is that we we have talked a lot about it and there did seem to be a momentum for change you know coming from a variety of different places and what we're talking talking about now is something that it's not it's not even new you know it's it's like it's something that we tried 11 years ago and it failed miserably and i think that's the that's the really depressing thing about this more a lot than of those eight else. teams would have representatives on that on the committee on the yeah. committee who are who are proposing this so, they're being re- remember that that those players are not being represented at that meeting by the GPA. They're being represented by their central council, council delegate, delegate um, who is going up there with the view that uh, this is not a bad idea. His job is to go back and try and sell that to county boards, or if he was, you know, if he, if he, a little bit more forthright thinking. It would be to to go and put this to to county teams, go and put it to county managers. But at the end of the day, you can't get every single person's like we're talking about the Carroll manager. We can't get every single person's opinion and put it into the pot. I mean, whoever you know sits on that on, on that committee, whoever is you know whoever has the majority is gonna that's gonna that's gonna sway things. Uh, it's a proposal which doesn't really carry a lot of. Interest, as far as I'm concerned, in that it doesn't. It's, there's nothing. Ra- as we already said there's nothing radical about it. So when we come to next year's championship, are we really that worried if if uh, if Carlo and 
and uh, London, London and Waterford end up in, in the big challenge after. No, exactly. Uh, no, I'm thinking uh, about it now, and it's you're, you're thinking about the headlines after Congress and whether this is passed or not. Yeah. Wouldn't particularly excite me. The, the other part of it is the suggestion to scrap the under twenty one championship, which is something that's been on the on the go for quite a long time. They've watered this down quite a lot as well, Murph. Yeah, so the the original proposal was that it wouldn't be minor, it would be under 17, and that they would scrap the under 21 championship. So, rightly, right or wrong, this is major change. This is a change in in how the uh, a player develops from a young yeah. player to a senior intercounty player, and it's a big idea. It's something to to try. What they've ended up saying is right. Well, minor is kind of a big deal, so we'll stick with that. And instead of the under 21 championship, an under 20 championship that. Uh, doesn't include any player that's uh, that's under eighteen, so you, can, you can't play minor and under twenty in the same year. And then no player that's been named on a senior team, senior intercounty team in that year. So basically, all of the good, all of the really good players, the star names that you would say, right, I'll go to this game to to watch. He's that, that guy's not going to be playing. Uh, so it's basically and the best. So the best minors wouldn't be allowed playing it. No, and the best. Under twenty ones wouldn't be allowed. The best under twenties wouldn't be allowed yeah. playing it because they'd be with the seniors. Yeah, yeah. I might have had a shot myself. Yeah. <laughs> if this is around back in the day. It but seems like, like yeah. Like, see, but see, this is it again. It's like the, you, the, you take a, a big idea, you shrink it until it's nothing, and then you present it. A here was the initial proposal. Okay, the initial proposal was to take minor from uh, to go from minor, which is under eighteen, to under seventeen, and then senior. Hmm. So nothing in between. There yeah. was no buffer zone. There was no under twenty. So obviously there was a massive kick up with that in that how do you bridge the gap between minor or sorry under 17 which it was going to be and senior and they come up with the under 20. I don't really see that much difference about it. I think if you if you stick to the under 18 and you stick to the under 21 and if the, if teams name a panel of uh, if likes of Dublin name a panel at the start of the year of 30 players and if you're under 21 and you're on that panel, I think it's right that that you that you're not involved. Now that doesn't make it the best competition in the world, but it does make it that uh, from a fixture point of view that you know there's not as much. I mean, for example, if you let's go back to clubs for a second. So if you play, if you're playing club under 21 football, mm. it's usually run off in the space of mm. three, four, five weeks. In Armagh, a couple of years ago, we had a situation where. That championship was held back because there was two people on the fringe of an Armagh senior panel and therefore there was no games being played because these two players were on it. I think the other thing about about this is that you at this time, what I call it Mad March, okay? So you've got uh, National League, both uh, hurling and football. You've got Sigerson Cup and, and Trench Cup and whatever else. You've got under-21, you've got minor, you've got schools football. I know gay. I know. I know a gay. I've spoken about this before. A lad from Louth who was playing for five teams, and he was expected to train every <laughs> single night of the week. I, he, he opted out of football. He didn't play football for a year. He's back in now, and he's playing a bit of football. But so is that the thinking behind the original idea to get rid of the under twenty one? Yes, just just, just so. to ease a fixture condition. I think, I think to alleviate and let players play with the colleges. Mm. The only thing about that is obviously that not every. Under twenty one is going to college. The majority of, of them probably. I do are, see where that does leave issues. Maybe for a seventeen year old, he's just gone eighteen. He's finished that minor, or the, if, if he's finished a new under seventeen grade, that's your young lad. Then not many yeah. people are going straight into a no. senior setup at that stage. So, uh, it, yeah, uh, you're, is uh, this, uh, yeah, you, mm. well, see, you're, you're playing Sigerson, you know. 
uh, well, yeah, if you go to college. I was say, not, yeah, yeah, not everyone's going to college. No, no that, it's, it's true. But, I mean, you're playing for your club, you know? <laughs> like, the, like you're, you don't... Uh, Intercounty panels aren't picked from under-21 teams or picked from, uh, picked from minor teams exclusively. You know, or picked from if lads who are playing Sigerson, right, okay, well, if you're playing Sigerson, you must be good enough for the county team, in you go. I mean, they're picked from club. There and it, this this is another way of saying to club football, right? It matters. I mean, if you want to make a name for yourself, you got got to go play for your club. You got to play well for your club. Is there an argument, though, with that this uh, the, again that the stronger counties, um, Dublin are always mm. the ones going to be brought up here. Dublin ha- have all these development squads in place. They brought Brian Cullen back in mm. back in recently to oversee all of that. That they will be the ones who be at an advantage because if you're with a weaker county, you might drift away from the the county scene at 17, 18 years of age. But if you're with Dublin, it doesn't matter that there's no under 20 grade or under 21 grade. Yeah. You'd be playing away at a high level within the county scene. To be setup. honest, right? To be honest, I think if you're if you're a footballer who's serious about playing senior football, I mean, it's, it's not like you can kind of drift in and out at the, at, at, as the way the game is now. I mean, you're either serious about it or you're not. I mean, if you play under 21, that... If if you're kind of wishy washy about the commitment needed to play senior football, I don't think the fact that you're playing for the under twenty ones would lead you to say, right, okay, at twenty one, I'm gonna, I'm, I, I, I want to play badly enough that I'll put in this level of effort. So you would just scrap the under twenty one slash under twenty championship. You don't think there's any need well, for it? Well, like I would be shooting the one footballing achievement of my own life. <laughs> I'd basically be putting the RIP side over the one achievement in my own footballing life. But I would say, to be honest, right. I would say that we probably should have tried it for a couple of years. I mean, and this is really what this is the point of behind this. That basically, that it's another. It's just another one of these situations where there was a chance for them to do something about this issue of of the mad march, as Oshin describes. There was a chance for them to do something, and in 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 the end, they've they've not they've 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 uh, haven't bit the bullet. They've just said, right, okay, this is another wishy-washy possible solution that will probably get shot down and we're happy enough to just maintain the status quo. Like, I would say, try it. And if if they, if there are, if players are coming back and saying, right, the under-21 thing was actually, it's a huge thing, a huge part of our development, uh, then, you know, you can bring it back. I mean, people do like the under-21 championship. But I just think, let's try something. You know, mm. the, the whole idea is that you try something, that... that uh, situations are reaching boiling point. People are actually getting really, really annoyed at the the level of inertia that they see. Problems piling up and nothing being done about them. Do something, and you're if you're going to get criticised anyway. So get criticised for doing something as opposed to not yeah. doing something. Yeah, there's going to be there's going to be criticism. I would agree. I would say keep the minor and 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 scrap the under twenty stroke twenty one championship. Right. Uh, and I think the thing about you know. There is always a there's always a period in the year where everybody's up in arms about yeah. about the player welfare and he's playing for five teams and he's playing for January. four teams. No. Yeah, when there's no football. Yeah, exactly. But then all of a sudden that sort of dissipates a little bit and and we go back to look, it's not that bad. You know what I mean? And then we go through the summer and we go through the club stuff. And there's a, there's a there's a also a thing going through Congress that. The All Ireland Club Championship will be played in the one year, which I think is a great thing. Mm. I I love the fact that club finals are on Paddy's Day. I, I love that, but something has to give somewhere along the line. But I think then get twelve of the best people we have within the GEA, put them in a darkened room in Crow Park, 
don't let them out until we come out with a fixture, uh, with a calendar, which I, honestly, Owen, I don't think that this could be that hard to do. Put them in there, put them in a the darkened room and let them come out whenever they have got, come up with a serious plan going forward without the under-21 challenge, without an under-20 challenge, with minor, senior, club football, uh, secrets from football and... Can it can it really be that hard? One of the problems we have with under one of the problems I have with under twenty one football is it starts in March, okay? Teams are now starting training in October and November. Under twenty one teams, yeah, and a lot of those teams will get one game because mm-hmm. you've got no backdoor system, you've got no uh, you've got no qualifiers. Uh, teams will come up against this really strong county to get one game on a Wednesday night in March, and that's them yeah. gone. They're after putting in four or five months of training. It's absolutely crazy. Yeah, yeah, and uh, to be honest, it, it, it's uh, it, 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 just, it was a depressing email to get on Saturday night as a result of this central council meeting because really, what you're hoping will happen someday is that with what you talk about there, ten or twelve people in a room make some decisions. Just the democ- the the essential democracy at the heart of the GA means. That's never going to happen. And I'm sorry, in this particular case, democracy is not our friend. <laughs> last, <laughs> last quick word. Oisín, you were talking about the club structure there. Uh, yeah. And you are at the moment in the middle of the, the elongated season. You're yeah. into the new year. You're preparing for an All-Ireland semi-final with Cross McGlenn. Yeah, we're going well. Um, it, it's it's tough because you you really don't know what to do over the Christmas period. Um, yeah, you can't drive them too hard. No How much point going too nuts. No, start, and, you know? and, and then you have to keep them sort of taking over mm. as well. Um Challenge matches, you don't really know where you stand with challenge matches. We've had good challenge matches, but you know, you really don't know until you <laughs> until you run it onto the pitch. We play on the thirteenth of February, and you know, we're doing all in our power to be as prepared for that as we can. I suppose the only good thing is that we realise that the other uh, three teams are in exactly the yeah. same position as we're in, but uh, we can't wait. Yeah, you well, best of luck with that. Thanks. Talk to you soon. Cheers modern day coaching. What is it all about? Paralysis by analysis. Infiltrated by a load of spoofers and bluffers. Fellas with earpieces stuck in their ears. Psychologists, Clyde Woodward, aestheticians, dietitians, and as Mick O'Connell alluded to, God save us. I like that image that Ushin draws of these great GA minds that he feels need to be locked into a darkened room just to sort out those fixtures. Mm. Do you feed these guys? Do you let them take break, toilet breaks? Or well, do you just, shit happens, lads, you just gotta, well, let's gotta just, deal with whatever happens in this room. Let's just uh, see how cooperative they're being, you know? <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll keep them keep them starved for the first eight or ten hours. Mm. And if they appear to be making progress then, mm-hmm. bread and water, maybe. Ken, you were quite dismissive of Wayne Rooney's two-goal performance against Newcastle. Mm-hmm. Do you accept now that he's back to his best after his win over Slipper? Well, I, I don't think he's back to his best now. He did, you know, he's obviously hit a spell of vastly improved goal scoring form. Um, but the season's already kind of been blown. Well, no, it hasn't. I mean, they can qualify for the Champions League. Well, they can qualify for the Champions League. I was kind of referring more to the fact that they're already out of the Champions League in the group stage. <laughs> yeah, you know, sure. those kinds of things. Um, and, you know... What would it take I, for I a see a situation where he's going to do just enough to get back in, so so that they'll go they'll go another season with him. When I really think it's it's past the point. I think he's he's had his time. Maybe maybe if he can get that record this season, what is he ten goals off the record? <sighs> I think it's only eight now. I know this. Eight off the record. There's a chance he might get that this season, 
and maybe then they can say, you've got your record, well done. I don't know. With Rooney, I tend to find it difficult to see where he goes. I don't, As in, I, I see him going to America or going to somewhere to mm. make loads of money at the end of his career. But I, for, for some reason, I don't see him going down to Spurs or... Some people, somebody's going to point out that his Spurs are ahead of Manchester United on the league table, but yeah, and have a much better player. Yeah, I mean the kind of player Manchester United, you know, have Tried would to like sign. to have. <laughs> you, know, you know what I mean? Five months ago, Rooney can't really he's, go to he's America. Not going to go to. It's obviously well past the time that one of the top Spanish clubs are going to go for him. Uh, if they ever were, could maybe go to Italy. No, absolutely. Well, what's the point Rooney of that? In Italy, it would just be absurd. I mean, well, there's nobody in Italy gets paid. He, he, it would be. I mean, he's a he's a chance of earning more money in America than in Italy. I, well, I Paris Saint Germain actually, Paris Saint Germain might still be at, at the point where they Paris might say, "We'll buy Wayne just throw a lot of money at Wayne." You're absolutely kidding me here. Mm. Paris Saint Germain are not going to buy Wayne Rooney. They don't need to buy someone else's used up, um, you know, past it striker. Mm. Uh, he scored three goals the, in two games. The problem is. Uh, he's, he gets paid so much at the moment that everywhere he goes is, is like a pay cut. No one will agree to pay no, him that I don't much think, again. I, I, I think but he'll I, still I, be Man United in, in uh, two and a half years' time. Hmm. I, like, he'll still be at the end of the 2018-2019 season. I would still say that Wayne Rooney will be... And then he goes to the money move somewhere. So there's no in-between. There's no still point where he's still playing West Ham or somewhere. I, I don't see the point from Wayne Everton. I just think when you look back... When you look back at Manchester United over the last 25 years, mm. um, who, wh- which striker, which regular striker who, who played for them in that whole period do you think was as bad as the current incarnation of Wayne Rooney? Which striker was as bad as... I mean, can you think of another striker who was a regular first-choice first player for Manchester United over the last 30 years? Who Brian McClare. Brian McClare. That's you mean, very harsh on Brian McClare. When Brian McClare was the top... 90, Brian McClare scored 31 90, goals. Yeah, in 1986. I know. 1991-92, Brian McClare. The 91-92, Brian McClare... Yeah, maybe. I mean, they ended up having to buy Cantona because the, the attack just wasn't functioning anymore. And it turned out well, but you know... David Bellion? But, but, but Bellion was not like the, the first choice, the first name in the team sheet. Bellion was just a... Uh, you know, I'm talking about who was their mainstay striker who was as bad as this. Look back, and they've always had better players. They've always had, you know, I mean, think Rooney himself when he was better. Well, a later uh, Dwight York, I'd say. Cristiano, by the time, by the time Dwight Ronaldo, York left, Ruth I think, he, I think York had fizzled out by the time he left. By the time York had left, he wasn't in the team anymore. It was Solskjaer, Sheringham, you know, Andy okay, Cole, it's a difficult Andy comparison Cole for to years. Make, you know, you, you, yeah. It's not a difficult comparison to make. The, the, the main striker at any given time. This, this is the worst it's been. And while, and, and it's one of the reasons why Manchester United is, you know, are, are still outside the Champions League spots. In a, in a season when Andy Cole in the, the early, leading sides Andy, are tripping over themselves. Andy Cole in the early days? Yeah, Andy Cole, maybe the, the Andy Cole who had the yips. Andy mm-hmm. Cole with the yips. Uh, and he still scored five against Ipswich. You know what I mean? Ipswich. Uh, <laughs> forget it. <laughs> On that, uh, Bob Shell. Thanks, Ken. <laughs> Thanks, no time to recover. Yip switch. Thanks yeah. very That's, much, Murph. I'll hang in the air till Thursday. Have a listen to the football podcast if you've got a little bit of time and we'll chat to you later in the week. Take care. What is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home.